Yes. <laughs> do I have that look on my face? Yes, you have your research card. I do. The National Archives in College Park, Maryland, is where much of the paperwork of America's bureaucracy goes to retire. You see on the ceiling the sign that says research consultation? Yes. And if you follow the directions of the helpful staff up on the second floor... Go in the room to the left of that. Great. Look completely confused and then... You can find an archivist. Um, uh, FDA archives. And And you can ask them to bring out docket number 76. Eventually someone will emerge from the bowels of the archives with a squeaky cart loaded with a pile of old cardboard boxes that hold the truth to a chronically misunderstood moment in American history. These guys are heavy. (laughs) (laughs) They don't look like all that much at first glance, just cardboard boxes stuffed with thousands and thousands of pieces of paper. Thank you. (laughs) But once you make your way to a desk, lug one of the boxes off the cart quietly, you've got to keep things down because you're in a library, then you open the box. Oh, wow. And you find something, and you still have to be quiet. So here, wedged between a bunch of folders, is a jar of peanut butter. Empty jar. There's a little bit of peanut butter left around the room. And if you look closely, you'll see a date scrawled in pencil on the jar's label. 12066. January 20th, 1966. It's the date this jar became a piece of forensic evidence in what was once one of the most ridiculed cases in American government. This now long forgotten but pivotal moment when... At least as the legend goes, federal regulators put peanut butter on trial. Welcome back to the Uncertain Hour, where the things we fight the most about are the things we know the least about. I'm Chrissy Clark, senior correspondent for Marketplace's Wealth and Poverty Desk, and this is a show that digs into the deepest uncertainties of our lives and our economy to try to make sense of making it in America. How people get ahead, how they get left behind. Each season, we go down the rabbit hole into one topic. This season, a thing that I've started to think of as the stealth issue of our times. It doesn't make the list of things you pay attention to all that much. It's kind of technical and wonky sounding. But that's exactly what makes it so powerful. Because while most people ignore it, it's shaping every moment of our lives, from the mundane to the existential. Even more so than the laws Congress passes or the speeches the president makes, I'm talking about red tape, government regulations, rules, government regulation, federal regulations. And for those in power today, regulations are a major preoccupation, a major item on their to-do list in Congress. We'll begin the process to unravel the red tape that's been keeping investment on the sidelines and innovation stymied. We promise the American people an aggressive agenda, lifting the regulatory burden that has impacted so many in this country. Ending the culture of overregulation. It's going to take more than a few months, but we have made a good start. Should I sign it? 
and in the White House. Since taking office, I've signed one action after another to eliminate job-killing regulations that stand in a way. We are going to simplify, reduce, eliminate regulations. Graceful regulations. They're being eliminated like nobody's ever seen before. There's never been anything like it. Except that there has been something like this before. In fact, there's a long American tradition of politicians from both parties lamenting federal regulations. Quick refresher, regulations are the things that Congress delegates power to agencies like the FDA and the EPA and the CFPB to write to fill in the details of the laws that Congress passes. And for decades, politicians have been calling out this regulatory system as broken, as a drag on business or costly to consumers, and they promise they'll fix that system. For too many Americans... Today's contact with government at every level means a bewildering mass of paperwork, bureaucracy, and delay. Here's President Jimmy Carter, a Democrat in 1979, joining the tradition. Needless rules, excessive costs, duplication, overlap, and waste. It's time that we take control of federal regulations in America instead of regulations continuing to control us. To make his point, Carter pointed to this one example of just how broken federal regulations had become in his day. It should not have taken 12 years and a hearing record of 100,000 pages for the FDA to decide what percentage of peanuts they ought to be in peanut butter. And in case people thought he was singling out that example just because he was a peanut farmer, he added, I would have used that example even if I had grown soybeans and wheat, by the way. The butt of Jimmy Carter's joke. This 12-year, 100,000-page saga to decide what percentage of peanuts they ought to be in peanut butter. You can point to that saga that's now stuffed in 11 cardboard boxes along with an empty jar at the National Archives. And here are the hearings. You can point to it as this turning point in our relationship with government regulations and our ideas about who regulations protect, who has the power and access to write them, and who, at least sometimes, gets written off. As I've been uncovering the weird epic story of regulating peanut butter, it's made me think differently about so many of the talking points we hear, even now, about how businesses hate regulations, how they're made by inefficient government bureaucrats nitpicking over trivial stuff. And I'm going to tell you that story over the next couple episodes. It's got industrial espionage, a David and Goliath courtroom showdown, deep philosophical questions, and urgent telegrams all about peanut butter. But before we get to those parts of the story, I need to tell you about the person who in many ways set this all in motion, a 50s housewife who never graduated high school and became known as... The peanut butter grandma. The peanut butter grandma, who, as one newspaper put it in 1970, spit in the corporate eye. (laughs) She did, but nicely. (laughs) She did it in a nice way. She looked so innocent. You know, you see this plump, gray-haired little grandmother sitting there, and they figure she doesn't know anything except knitting a sweater or something. But her mind was like a steel trap. The peanut butter grandma's real name was Ruth Desmond. 
She died in 1988, in her 80s. But this woman, with the laugh, (laughs) Janet Swagger, knew her well. Long before she was a grandma, before she was famous for peanut butter or anything. I'm her angel of a daughter. (laughs) She always called me her angel. (laughs) Janet was Ruth's only child. They were always close. Apparently, they had the same laugh, too. And growing up in the 1950s, Janet spent a lot of time with her mom in the kitchen of their small brick house in Arlington, Virginia. Janet still lives there now. She's 76. When you look at this room and picture your mom, what would she be doing in it? Where would she be? Oh, she'd be busy with her blender or her bread maker. You know, her her oven would have a roast in it. You know, and she'd be at the table with uh, biscuits or something, or bread, you know, kneading it and cookies. She was, she was like a serious homemaker. A very serious homemaker. She always cooked from scratch. You know, her own pie crust. Like I always, my father always said, he'd know that mother was ready to do him in if she served him a meal out of a box that was packaged. And that was only kind of a joke. Ruth was born in 1907 in Washington, D.C., and from an early age, she was a fighter. As a child, Ruth had rickets and scurvy, two diseases that come from not eating the right kind of food. Her dad died when she was 15. Suicide. When she was 16... Unfortunately, grandmother took her out of school, put her to work. By the time Ruth got married and had her daughter, Janet, cooking, putting food on the table for her family, this domestic work that can sometimes get trivialized, Ruth really did see those things as matters of life and death. Part of why Ruth took food so seriously was because of something that happened in 1955. Ruth's husband, Gordon, Janet's dad, had come down with bladder cancer. Janet says everyone was blindsided when her dad was diagnosed. He was young, in his 40s. And uh, I remember him going in for surgeries and all, and we'd go visit at the hospital. During one surgery, Janet remembers the doctors were talking about the general anesthesia they were going to use on her dad. Her mom overheard them and explained that he'd had a bad reaction to it in an earlier surgery. Stopped his heart for three minutes. She said instead of general anesthesia, he needed a spinal block, but the doctors didn't pay attention to her. So she actually rode the gurney into the surgical room. (laughs) laying across his body, saying you will not give him anesthesia. That's the kind of person she was. The kind of person she was. She was determined. So there you go. That was how she looked at everything. As for Janet's dad's cancer. Fortunately, he got most of it out. Cut cut a lot of it out. But um, mother then wanted it to stay out because bladder cancer is one of those that can reoccur. And at this point, Ruth did something lots of us might do in her situation. Research. She went to the library, started reading up on the latest science about cancer and its potential causes, which led her to these studies on... The potential role of chemical additives and pesticide residues in food. Angie Boyce is a bioethicist at Johns Hopkins who's written about Ruth Desmond. She says Ruth started looking into the emerging science about these new chemicals that, in the last few decades, food manufacturers were adding to food, and studies that linked some of them to cancer and lab animals. The science was still uncertain, inconclusive, but it raised questions for Ruth about how safe the food was that she was feeding her family. And more importantly, who was supposed to be in charge of figuring out 
what was safe. And that's when she really had a revelation. That's Janet Swagger again, Ruth's daughter. And said, I'm going to do something about this. And if doing a little library research is something that any of us might try in Ruth's situation, what Ruth does next is something most of us might not take the time to do. Without Ruth's gurney-climbing, surgery-room door-busting determination. At that point... That's Angie Boyce, the bioethicist, again. And I think, you know, this is so, like, this is so Ruth Desmond. She calls the FDA. (laughs) They're named the Food and Drug Administration, after all. So she figures they're supposed to be the ones keeping watch over food to protect consumers. So what are they doing about the questionable safety of all these chemical additives? And they tell her, if you're interested in this, why don't you, you know, you're local. She was in Arlington, Virginia, remember, just down the road from the FDA. Why don't you attend this hearing we're going to have on food additives? And so she does. Drives over to the headquarters of the FDA. She loved driving her big Pontiac. She was so short, and all you could see was a pair of knuckles and some eyeballs peering over the steering wheel. And she'd be going 80 and 85 miles an hour. It was a journey Ruth would come to take many, many times over the course of her life. But it was sitting in on these first FDA hearings on food additives that Ruth got a kind of crash course in the history of food in America, especially its less savory side. Uh, For two years, my committee held extensive hearings. This is an old interview with Congressman James Delaney, the guy who kicked the FDA hearings on food additives into gear in the 50s. I felt that the sponsor of these new and untested chemicals should show to the satisfaction of food and drug that they were not harmful to human consumption. As, as time develops and we have new scientific research and new methods of discovery, we find that many of those things that were thought to be safe at that time are not safe. It's worth remembering that food, what's in it, where it comes from, how you buy it, how long it lasts, was in the middle of a complete transformation during Ruth Desmond's lifetime. When she was born in 1907, there were no synthetic pesticides. There were no refrigerators in people's homes. The milk Ruth drank came from a cow in her own backyard. As a child, it was easy for Ruth to know what was in her food. She could pet some of it. But the world was changing. Remember, we're moving from an agricultural society to an urban society in many respects. It's a period of urbanization and industrialization. Suzanne Junod is a historian at the FDA. And that thing she just said about industrialization, you've probably read some similar sentence in a history book at one point. And it sounds so abstract. But for the people living through it day to day, like Ruth Desmond, it showed up in little tangible things like suddenly food starts coming in packages. Women were just beginning to get small uh, package products as opposed to buying these large things out of bins and what we would call buying in bulk. And as more food got put into packages designed to sit on store shelves, ideally for long periods of time, other things were being put in those packages too. Salicylic acid, formaldehyde. People were experimenting with all sorts of chemicals used to preserve foods. And honestly, no one knew if they were safe or not, in what amounts they might or might not be safe. People got sick from this stuff, 
or in some cases died. There were increasingly desperate calls for government to step in, calls from the public and actually from lots of food companies worried that the public would stop buying packaged food if they didn't trust that it was safe. This was part of what prompted Congress to create the FDA in the first place. They wanted scientists to start testing the safety of food additives and be able to regulate them. In the early 1900s, one government scientist actually recruited a bunch of young men to start tackling this issue. Every night, they'd get together for dinner, dressed in suits and bow ties. Ate all their meals at a common table, and one at a time they introduced a chemical and gradually increased the dose until they found some adverse effects. So they were, they were experimenting on themselves? <laughs> they, were the, they were the lab rats? They volunteered to be experimented upon. They called themselves the Poison Squad. When Ruth learned about all this, that without government regulation, careless manufacturers had slipped poisons into our food, it stuck with her. And then there were the stories she learned about things that weren't poisonous, just sketchy. Like how during the Great Depression, the FDA found companies that mixed sawdust and chalk into their bread dough to make it cheaper to produce. They were making jams with very little, if any, fruit, just pectin and coloring and flavoring. A whole host of products that were designed to be profitable for the manufacturer, hoping that the consumers wouldn't notice the poor quality. And then... America goes to war. Men of the Army, Navy, and Marines reinforce the battlefronts on six continents. The biggest change of all happens to food. We had a multitude of chemicals that came as a result of World War II. Here's Congressman Delaney again, who was involved in those FDA hearings. You might say you had a revolution in the preparation, the preservation, and the coloring and the staying qualities of our food supply. During World War II, the food science industry went to work and totally changed the American food supply because they were making food to feed our troops all over the world. Peter Hutt teaches food and drug law at Harvard. Since the 1960s, he's been a lawyer for some of the biggest food companies around. You had to be able to ship food anywhere in the world for our troops who were fighting everywhere that was imaginable and under the most unimaginable conditions. So that's how the food supply began to change. It became to be a processed food, an engineered food, if you will. And when the war ended, the two biggest industries left standing in America were the chemical industry and the food industry. And when they started joining forces, the results worried people like Congressman Delaney. There was just such a multiplicity of such chemicals being used in foodstuffs that it was impossible to keep up with the number of new products that were offered for induction into our food supply. Which brings us back to Ruth Desmond. You see, the difficulty with most of these chemicals is the intake of them doesn't make you sick immediately. There she is, sitting in the hearing room of the FDA, listening to all this. But it has what is known as a residual toxicity. Driving back from meetings in her blue Pontiac to take care of her sick husband. Taken over a long period of time. With this new information in her head. Then you'd uh, reach your tolerance. 
maybe stopping at the grocery store to buy the fixings for dinner for her family. And your system would rebel, and you'd feel the entire effect of what this cumulative toxicity was in your system. And she's reaching for the food on the shelves. What you think are good ingredients, and then you find out what they've done to the food before it even gets to the grocery store. And she said, oh my God, you know, I'm, I'm killing my husband when I think I'm trying to help him. After Ruth went to that first FDA hearing, it was like that thing that pops up in the corner of your eye, catches your attention, and then makes you start seeing everything differently forever. Janet says something got put into motion for her mom. It was just like a, a bowling ball. It just kept going down the alley. And that's what she did. She got, got her foot in the door and never left. <laughs> she said, this is a disgrace because nobody knows about all the other stuff. The first few hearings she went to, Ruth would listen to what was said inside the hearing room about pesticides found in baby food, about the red dye being used in candies and popcorn that, when scientists tested it on dogs and humans, made them sick, about a growth hormone used to fatten cattle and chickens that lingered in their meat and was known to cause cancer even at low doses. But just as shocking to Ruth were the discussions that happened once the hearings were over for the day. After the hearings, when they'd be meeting out in the hall or something, they'd all come out and the industry people would tell her everything. And, and she said, I, I can't understand why they talk to me and tell me everything, but that's it. You know, she'd be, oh, so innocent. Oh, my goodness. She, she could draw people out, and they weren't, didn't know they were being drawn out. Then Ruth went from just listening to taking notes. Really good notes, it turned out, because that job that Ruth got when her mom made her drop out of high school she went to work as a legal stenographer. Meaning? From being a stenographer, she t had shorthand. Yeah, that comes in very handy. She had a good skill set to do. Yes, yeah, she did. She always had her little notebook, and she took notes in shorthand, you know, wrote down things that she wanted to remember to put in her newsletter. That's right, her newsletter. At some point, Ruth realized if the vast uncertainties around the safety of what was in food was all news to her, it was probably news to a lot of women like her. It's not like what Ruth was listening to in these hearings was top secret. It was all publicly available. But unless you knew where to look, what hearings to go to, Ruth realized you'd never have a clue what was going on behind the scenes with your food. She wanted the word to get out. She said she was an alerter. She said, I will tell everything. I will get all the facts and I will blab it to everybody because everyone needs to be an informed. So she called herself an alerter. Uh huh. And that's what she got, and that's what was in her newsletter, you know, telling people all the hearings and what was going on and the bills in Congress. She put it in her newsletter and get the word out. And a newsletter sounds a lot more official if it's got some sort of organization to back it up. And so the Federation of Homemakers was born. You know, ladies that are trying to do the best for their families and keep their children healthy and their families healthy. So it's a federation for, really, for homemakers. At least in theory. Who was the first member of the Federation of Homemakers? I, uh, my father. <laughs> Janet, a teenager at the time, joined too. But slowly, Ruth got more members. She started recruiting neighbors posting her newsletter in health food stores, 
She described it as a nationwide organization of public-spirited housewives. And the dues were? $5 a year. (laughs) $5 a year. Janet pulls out a photograph to show me. That's a picture of her working in her office. (laughs) Ruth's at a desk, overflowing with papers. There'd be stacks of proposed regulations, stacks of her subscription to the congressional record. This house was full of congressional records laying everywhere. She'd be reading, and everything she read, she had a highlighter, (laughs) highlighting all the important stuff. Buried on the desk, there'd be Ruth's typewriter, an old mechanical one. She could really type, too. (laughs) You know, The newsletters were usually a few pages long, with headlines like, What goes on at FDA? And Shall we be victors or victims? Or just simply, Good news! Ruth would summarize the latest tidbits she'd learned from prowling the halls of the FDA. Like, did you know by the 1950s there were more than 4,000 additives used in food? She'd share policy analysis, reminding her readers that current food laws allowed untested chemicals to be used in foods. She'd post alerts about the salmonella outbreak in Lipton's Noodle Ooze or the artificially flavored grape margarine that had just hit the market, which she gave a one-word review, UG. Janet remembers her mom working late into the night on these newsletters. Of course, she, she had to work up to it. She'd get up at 2 o'clock in the morning, go over to her typewriter and write a newsletter, and she'd run screaming into the printer who was standing by with his garage door open, knowing she'd be screaming in at about 6 or 7 in the morning to get it all printed up so she could mail it out that day. Ruth started going to more and more hearings at FDA on orange juice, cheese, ham— Stuff that was familiar to most Americans, that not long ago had no more ingredients than the ones in their name. But we're beginning to also include artificial sweeteners, artificial colors, emulsifiers, hydrogenated oils. Ruth would listen to government scientists and industry scientists talk about what they knew and didn't know about this stuff. And an idea started taking shape in her head, something that academics have a name for. The precautionary principle. Here's Angie Boyce again from Johns Hopkins. This idea that we need to be cautious when we don't have enough information. That American families shouldn't be the guinea pigs for testing this stuff out. That government should wait to allow something into the marketplace until they know it's safe, rather than taking it out of the marketplace if they find out it's not safe. At first, Ruth didn't share her opinions about the precautionary principle or anything else out loud at these hearings. She mostly just took notes and listened. And just imagine the scene. Remember, this is the 1950s. Now, I wasn't at the hearings. FDA historian Suzanne Junod. But the original hearings, as I understand it, was just a bunch of people getting in the room. There was testimony from scientists, from manufacturers, from nutritionists. Most all of them men, dressed in suits. And then, somewhere in the room, Ruth Desmond. Short, plump, Always well-dressed. She wouldn't even go to the grocery store if she didn't have her corset and hose and dress with a jacket that made her look slenderer and her hat and gloves and pocketbook. And eventually, her lobbying mink. Oh, the lobbying mink, yeah. (laughs) My father bought it for her. A little mink stole. Like for when she went to lobby? When she went to hearings and stuff so she would look elegant 
and all put together, you know, and make a good impression when she faced off against all these suits, as she called them. (laughs) Because knowing Ruth, you didn't think she'd just let the Federation of Homemakers sit on the sidelines forever, right? Eventually, she decided her group should start speaking up in the hearing room with all the suits, participating. And the homemakers' first foray involved not peanut butter, that was still a few years off, but cranberries. We interrupt this program for a special news bulletin. On November 9th of 1959, the FDA announced that inspectors had discovered a crop of cranberries from the Pacific Northwest contaminated with a weed killer known to cause cancer in animals. According to federal regulations, farmers were supposed to spray the chemical on cranberry bogs long enough before harvest that it had time to wear off the berries. But apparently some bogs got sprayed too late. This was especially jarring for Ruth, Janet says, because... Father liked her to make her famous cranberry jelly from scratch, boiling down the berries and putting them through a sieve and all that sort of good stuff. The government made a public announcement, warned that if you didn't know exactly where your cranberries came from, this year you should keep them off the Thanksgiving table. And the nation freaked out. Overnight, cranberries disappeared from store shelves, Several cities and states banned the sale of cranberries altogether. Janet remembers her mom reading about it all in the paper. It was a scandal. They had sprayed the cranberries, and here they are laying out in the grocery stores. Housewives panicked about what to do without their favorite holiday condiment. Life magazine offered tips on what other fruit tasted good with turkey. This song hit the airwaves about the brand new worry all over the nation. But the FDA got blamed for overreacting. Richard Nixon and JFK, both running for president, flouted government warnings and very publicly consumed cranberries on the campaign trail. Cranberry growers argued that people would have to eat carloads of cranberries for the pesticide residue to do any harm. And they hanged an FDA official in effigy. But while lots of Americans were cursing the FDA, for Ruth, this was the moment she'd been waiting for, when government regulators finally stood up and did something to protect consumers. She saw it as an example of the promise of government regulations. And when there were cranberry hearings in 1959, for the first time, the Federation of Homemakers does something new. Rather than just being spectators to all this wrangling between government and industry, they join the conversation. The Federation makes a statement defending how the FDA handled the contaminated cranberries and noting that they were, quote, appalled at the attitude of several executives of the cranberry interests whose sole concern seems to be a financial one. It was a short statement, but it was only a dress rehearsal for something much bigger that would be in the Federation and Ruth Desmond's future. 
Ruth first got wind of this thing a little while earlier when she was sitting in an FDA office and noticed something on the desk. It was an announcement prompted by a covert action the FDA had recently executed on behalf of peanut butter. Coming up on the next Uncertain Hour, Ruth Desmond marches to the front lines of the peanut butter wars and changes the way we think about food and government regulations even today. This, my friends, is a peanut. As you can see, it's no ordinary peanut, but a big, irresistible, triple-jointed, fresh-roasted peanut. And it's typical of the elite, high-toned, snooty peanuts that go into the making of Skippy's. Skippy peanut butter. The Uncertain Hour is produced by me, Chrissy Clark, and Caitlin Esch, Maria Hollenhorst, Tommy Andres, Lyra Smith, and Tony Wagner. Jake Gorski is our engineer. Nancy Fargali is the senior editor. Sitara Nieves is the executive producer of Marketplace. Deborah Clark is the senior vice president and general manager. Let us know what you think about our show. Our Twitter account is at Uncertain Hour. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us continue the work we do. And you've heard me say that The Uncertain Hour is produced by Marketplace, but something you might not have heard is that we're a nonprofit news organization. Part of our funding comes directly from listeners like you, who believe that the stories we tell and how we tell them are important. Thanks to everyone who donates to help make this kind of reporting possible. Visit uncertainhour.com if you'd like to know more. <laughs>